Some of you may be familiar with what I'm about to say, but some of you may not. But last year, one of the larger internet search engines, one of the larger companies, had a poll amongst all of its users. And it asked them to respond with this. What are life's toughest questions? Now, I didn't see it when it happened. I read an article about it, and I don't remember from the article exactly how many different questions were submitted and how many unique submissions there were, how many unique people were submitting questions. But as I was reading the article, the the author of the article began to get to what he called the leaderboard of questions. And he said, as the search engine put this poll out there and people began to respond, some questions began to show up more than once. And they they had a leaderboard, so to speak, of questions. And on that leaderboard of life's toughest questions were, were stumpers like, do blondes have more fun? Those were the questions. Why do we never see baby pigeons? Now, I immediately started to lose faith in my culture. And in the generations behind me, what's love began to rise on the top of the board. And before I lost all kinds of hope, the author was saying at the top of the board though, amongst do blondes have more fun and why don't we ever see baby pigeons? Number one question submitted to this poll was, what's the purpose for our existence? What's the purpose for our existence? Does life actually have a purpose? Many of you may know that this week we are beginning a series of sermons as part of a citywide campaign called Explore God. And the Explore God campaign is built around seven fundamental questions common to all mankind that varying people are offering different answers to. And Churches all around this city are going to be answering these seven questions from God's word over the next seven weeks. And this week, the very first question that we're tackling is this one that people submitting random questions to an internet search engine said is the toughest question for them to answer. Does life actually have a purpose? It's a good question. It's actually an excellent question. It's a fundamental question that people have been trying to answer since the dawn of humanity. Some of you may have heard of a man named Viktor Frankl. You may have been assigned something that Viktor Frankl wrote in college, or maybe you've read something where someone quoted Viktor Frankl. He's an often oft-quoted man. He was a Jewish psychotherapist who survived the horrors of Nazi concentration camps in the Second World War. And writing after reflecting upon that experience and then his current experience at the time in the world in which he was living, Viktor Frankl said this. He said, for too long, We've been dreaming a dream from which we're now waking up. The dream that if we just improve the socioeconomic situation of people, everything will be okay. People will finally be happy. The truth is that as the struggle for survival has subsided, the question has emerged, survival for what? Ever more people today have the means to actually live, but no purpose to actually live for knowing that life indeed has a purpose. It's not just a fundamental question that people pursue. It's something that will absolutely transform everything about the way you understand your life. It will transform the way you interpret the experiences that you go through in this life, the way you interpret the blessings, the way you interpret the pain. It's not a new question. 
It's an old question. And this morning, as we look into God's word in Acts chapter 17, we're going to look at two of the oldest ways that man has been trying to answer this question. Ways that they were, they were speaking about and looking at back in, in Paul's day and ways that has continued to have its influence in the way that you and I try to answer the question today. And then we're going to see the way that Christianity answers the question a bit differently. So if you've got your Bibles, Acts chapter 17, we're going to pick it up in verse 16. We're going to read through a little bit and then... We're going to head in that direction. Look at this, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for his co-workers, Timothy and Silas in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And if you were with us last week, we spent our time looking at that last week. But you don't have to have been here last week to understand what we're going to say this week. Verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also converse with Paul. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, we'll stop right there. As we kind of move on in our journey in answering this question, does life have a purpose? I want to stop for a minute and just say a few things about the two groups of people that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, mentions here. He mentions two particular groups that were listening to Paul and and speaking with Paul and that were curious about what Paul was trying to say. And these two groups, broadly speaking, and I'm going to paint a picture of them in very broad strokes, but broadly speaking, the way that these two particular groups conceived of life and then the purpose for which they had in life is very similar similar to the way that you and I tend to answer the same question. So we're going to look at them for just a minute and try to understand it a bit and then go to see how the Apostle Paul responded to them, all right? So the first group we'll we'll look at for a second is the Stoics. You may be familiar with the term. You may have been introduced to the Stoics in college. Like me, you may have tried to avoid any classes that had you reading things like this. But the Stoics were a group of people that were very influential in Paul's day and in, in antiquity. And I'm going to paint them in broad strokes, but I want you to see the connections. The Stoics as a whole believed that all of life, the entire universe, was governed by one ordering principle. And that ordering principle was reason. And the ordering principle of reason was in everything. Everything was animated by, governed by, and ordered by reason. But here's the thing about reason. The Stoics actually believed that this universal governing principle of reason was subjected to fate. Fate actually overruled or drove reason. So the Stoics would believe that that fate determined what you were going to experience in life. And because you couldn't choose what you were going to experience in life, you had to respond to the various circumstances that you experienced in life in the best way that you possibly could. The only thing you could control was how you responded to life. And the operating principle for the Stoics was that it was best for you to respond to all situations in life in the most dignified and tranquil way possible. This is where we get the whole Stoic idea of just grinning and bearing it. You experience something in life, just grin and bear it. Deal with it in the most tranquil, peaceable, dignified way possible. The main purpose of life, the man's chief end for a Stoic was to figure out how you fit into the universal order of reason and then how you respond to the inevitable circumstances that fate would bring into your life. One writer trying to summarize it for us said, the happy person, they taught, is one that does not fight against life but accepts it with tranquility and dignity 
and endures both favorable and tragic experiences with unperturbed equanimity. Bad or good, your response didn't change. By self-control and stability, a person will actually gain happiness. One of the Stoic writers, he said this, it's very helpful for me. He said, man must seek out the things which befit his place in the natural order and pursue them not with desire which might be disappointed, but with disinterested virtue. Your chief end was to pursue those things which brought you the most good that you might respond to them though with disinterested virtue. Such a formidable force was Stoicism in antiquity and in particular in Paul's day. Stoicism ceased to actually be a school of philosophy and its thought was woven into the entirety of Roman culture and society. And if we were to take time and really kind of tease it out a little bit, it's not uncommon to the way you and I approach life today. I just need to figure out how I fit into the order of the world around me. I need to just do the best that I can, respond to the situations that I get, be they good or bad, in the most peaceable way I can, because that's all I can really hope for. Now, over and against the Stoics, though, there was another group that Luke talked about here, and that was the Epicureans. And they were a bit different than the Stoics. The Epicureans actually believed that the universe, the world, and everything in it was the result of random motion and a random combination of atomic particles. One philosopher summarizes them this way. He says, the eternity of atoms and the randomness of their creative collisions eliminate for the Epicureans a need for universal reason behind creation. The theory that the Epicureans put forward makes humans an atomic accident and their death nothing tragic or moral, but rather the alteration of atoms. When the atoms that have randomly collided together, forming whatever it is that they have formed, no longer collide together to form that, whatever it is ceases to exist, period. For them, that was how they handled death. They no longer felt like they had to fear death because death just meant the end of whatever you experienced, no pain. So no cause for anxiety. Just atoms that cease to collide together anymore. So, for the Epicureans, again, in broad strokes. The chief end of man and the purpose of life was to seek happiness. But unlike the Stoics, they defined happiness as the absence of pain and the absence of the ordinary anxieties of life. So when you face a different circumstance or question or opportunity in your life, a certain relationship or, or anything you would deal with in your life, you would choose whether or not you would pursue it or how you would respond to it based on whether or not you thought it would bring you pleasure or pain. Is this going to bring you pleasure or you pain? Now, because you, like everyone else, was just a random collision of atomic particles that at any moment could separate and cease to exist, you don't try to determine what you do based on whether or not what you do brings someone else pleasure or pain. Just you. This was the way that they lived. Epicurus, the, the father of this way of thinking, he actually believed and would teach that the only reliable guide that you and I had for figuring out what to do and what would lead us to a greatest sense of pleasure and help us to avoid the most pain and the most anxiety in life was within us. It was our senses. He called it our sensations. You and I would simply call it our, our gut. So when you and I hear Epicureans, if you're anything like me, you tend to extrapolate it out or you've heard someone teach about it like, like humanity gone wild. Just do the most of whatever you can, whatever you think can bring you the most of, of pleasure and avoid the, the most pain possible regardless of the circumstances. Well, 
That's the way we've kind of teased it out. But that's not what he actually taught. So I want to be very fair to him when you, when you hear this. The Epicureans, especially in Paul's day, they actually looked at life and realized that there were momentary pleasures that you and I could pursue in this life that would actually result in long-term pain. So if the ideal life and happiness is found in avoiding the most pain and anxiety, maybe you deny yourself a particular pleasure because you know that it's going to end up in pain. But they also knew that there were temporary pains in life that would produce in life long-term happiness and pleasure. So you would endure particular pains knowing they would bring you long-term happiness and pleasure. Sound familiar at all to anybody? For the Stoics, the chief end of man, the, the purpose of life was to be happy. And that happens when you figure out how your life fits into the universal order and you're able to accept the inevitability of life and respond to it with dignity and tranquility, be it good or be it bad. Happiness through some kind of passive resignation. And for the Epicurean, the chief end of man, the purpose of life was happiness. But happiness was found by living in a way that helped you to avoid the most pain and the most anxiety and promote for you the most pleasure. Pleasure first. Pursue what pleases me. Avoid pain because that's all there is in this life. But do either of those sound remotely familiar to the way you or anyone around you tends to think about life now? Just figure out how I fit. Do the best I can. Respond to it as evenly as possible because there's nothing that I can do to change it and this is all there is. Or this is all there is. I better get the most that I can get right now because I don't know when it's going to end. doesn't matter what it does to you or what it does to anyone else around me. I've just got to get what I can because it can stop at any time and this is all there is. Lots of ways of thinking have poured out of these two schools, but these two schools have exerted a tremendous influence even today on the way that we approach this question. But here's the thing. They all have one thing in common. As different as they are from each other, they have one thing in common, and no one has said it better than a French mathematician, philosopher, theologian named Blaise Pascal. Pascal said this, all men, all men, be they Stoics, be they Epicureans, be it the Apostle Paul, be it Christians, all men seek one thing, and that's happiness. This is without exception. Whatever means they employ, they all tend to this one end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same in both, attended to with different views. The will of a man never takes the least step but towards this one object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. All of us pursue in our life what we think makes us happy. In fact, C.S. Lewis, who many will say is the greatest modern Christian thinker, philosopher, said this. He said, it's a Christian duty for everyone to be as happy as he can. And so what I'm going to say this morning, because I think the Bible supports it and I want to help you see, is that the chief end of man, as the Stoics would say it, or as the Epicureans would say it, is man's happiness isn't necessarily incorrect. I don't think it's wrong. I think it's just incomplete. The chief end of man is to be happy. I don't think it's wrong. I just think it's incomplete. And the Apostle Paul helps us in Acts chapter 17 to see how, how we can actually understand this. So if you've got your Bible, Acts chapter 17, let's get back to it. Verse 19. 
Here's what the Apostle Paul continues to say. They're intrigued by him, and so they take him to the Areopagus, and they say, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We want to know what these things mean. I mean, what Paul is preaching about who they are and why they're there and what that means, it's absolutely fascinating to them because it undermines everything that they believed. Paul helps them to see through God's word that purpose is not something you create for yourself. Purpose is actually given to you by a God who created you with a distinct purpose. Help us to understand what that means, Paul. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, verse 22, he says, men of Athens, I, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to all mankind and breath to everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Now listen, fundamental to understanding the purpose of life is knowing that you were created by God. That's where Paul starts. The God who created the world and everything in it who gives order to the entire thing and gives mankind, gives you life and breath and everything. Now, for many of you sitting in here, that might not be earth-shattering news. You may have heard that. You may have already thought about that. You may have already dealt with that. But for many people and all of them, really, who were sitting there listening to the Apostle Paul, this was shattering. <clears throat> what he was saying was undermining the way that they had understood everything about life and why they were there. The one true God who created all things and gives life and breath and everything to mankind undermines the stoic sense of universal reason that permeates everything. It absolutely undermines the way the Epicureans understood why they were there, how they got there, and then how they were to live because they were more than just a random collection of atomic particles. You see, when you understand what the Apostle Paul is trying to say, that you were indeed created by God intentionally for a purpose, it changes everything about the way you look at life. It changes the way you understand how you live and why you live and what you live for. You see, one of the things I hope one day, and if you've been here for any period of time, you might have heard me say it before, I hope one day in eternity, God lets us see how everything in the Bible played out. I hope we get to sit there and kind of watch it all play out. Hear the voices and see the inflection and the facial changes because I know this, these are just cliff notes of what Paul said in Athens. The sermon that Paul preached in Athens had to go on for at least an hour or two. Questions coming at him, answers coming at him. And I know that if in eternity, and if God doesn't let me see it, I'll still be happy because I'm with him, I know that. But I hope he lets me see it because when we hear Paul in Athens, I know, I know in my heart, Paul has to take all these philosophers back to Genesis chapter one. He has to go back and help them understand this because it's fundamental to changing the way they understood the purpose of the life they live. In Genesis chapter one, verse 26, it says this. 
God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, or the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. You see, you have to fundamentally understand that you were created by God with intention for a purpose. And the key to understanding what that purpose is, is understanding what it means to be created in his image. And theologians and philosophers for centuries have tried to understand everything that you can pack into what it means to be created in God's image. But the one thing that everybody knows and understands and agrees upon fundamentally is that images were created to do one thing. Do you know what it is? There's one fundamental thing that images do. You ready? They image something. It's not a trick. It's not a trick. Don't overthink it. The fundamental thing that images were created to do is to image something. That is why those of you who are married or those of you who are getting married, you spend the money that you spend and the time that you spend finding the perfect location and getting the perfect dress and getting the hair done in the perfect way and get the perfect picture taken so that you can blow it up and frame it and put it in the perfect place in your house so that everybody can walk in, look at it and not connect it to the reality next to them. Right? That's why you do it. Right? It's why we build statues. It's why we think about great things that have happened in history and build statues. That's why there's a statue in D.C. of five men putting a flag down at the end of World War II. It's there for us not to connect it to reality, right? No, images are fundamentally meant to do one thing. They're meant to image something. And what the Bible just said and what the Apostle Paul is beginning to argue for those there in Athens is simply this. You were created with one fundamental purpose. You were created by God with intention for one purpose. And that's to image him. That's to display him. That's for him, as the prophet Isaiah said, his intention was to fill the entire earth with images, with his glory. Paul talking to them in Athens says, from one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. In creating man, God intended to fill the entire earth with his glory. Images of him throughout the earth. But you can understand image in another way too. Not just the picture or or the statue that's meant to reflect or to to display the the reality. You can understand it this way. And this helped me probably 15 years ago when I first read it. I don't remember who wrote it. I always attribute it to Ravi Zacharias, but I can't really remember. He said this. He said, you were created by God in his image like a mirror. A mirror that was supposed to be at a 45 degree angle with the reflective side pointing upward. So that as God shone on it at a 45 degree angle, it would bounce off and make a 90 degree turn and be reflected out into the world. Well, some of you are, can follow that. I should, I, I, should have, I should have brought a mirror so you could see that. You got to picture it in your head. A mirror at a 45 degree angle. So that as God shone down on it at a 45 degree angle, it would reflect at a 90 degree angle back out on the earth. Because you were created with intention for the purpose of reflecting the glory of God throughout the face of the earth. That was the purpose for which you were created. But here's the thing. We know something happened. We know something happened. Because that's not what's occurring. 
Every man, woman, and child on this earth is not reflecting and displaying the glory of God throughout the ends of the earth. What theologians call the fall, what some of you may be familiar with as the fall, was when man said, you know what? I want to reflect my glory. I think what's most important to be seen, what's most important to be displayed, what's most important to be reflected is my greatness. And each and every single one of us has been born into this world now believing that you are the center of everything. You were born believing that you are the center of everything and everything is meant to be about you. If you have kids, you know there are two things you don't have to teach your kid. How to say no and how to say mine. You're born intrinsically believing that everything is about you. And if you think you grow out of it, you don't. Just think about the 10,000 pictures you have on your iPhone. The beautiful pictures of sunsets and places you visited and all the glories that you've seen. How do you determine whether it's a good picture or not? How do you look in the picture? You delete 90% of the pictures you take because they don't make you look good. Regardless of what everything else in the picture looks like. You and I believe that everything about this world is meant to orbit around us. That same writer who gave me the illustration of the mirror, he said this. He said, Satan has persuaded us that our image is more beautiful than God's. And so here's what happens. We flip the mirror over. The non-reflective back of the mirror is now pointing towards God. And the reflective side of the mirror simply just casts a shadow in the shape of itself on the ground. We have flipped the mirror. We've flipped the story. And we believe that everything is supposed to be about us. This is what makes the question of does life have purpose seem so difficult for people to answer. We were created to image, to reflect, to display the glory of God, the one who created us. Instead, instead we've changed the story. Instead, we've turned the mirror over. And now when we pursue what brings us the greatest happiness, like Solomon said, we all have ways that we think are right in our own eyes, but ultimately they lead to death because there's no way that we can conceive of how to fill that delight and that joy and that satisfaction and that purpose for which we were created that we can create for ourselves. It can't happen. It can't happen. And so there's a dilemma. God purposed to fill the earth with his glory and we reject the purpose for which we were created. We said no. We rebelled. And now here's the thing. In in Paul's day, there was a way that governments would treat rebels. There was a way that they would respond to people who looked at them and said, no. You know what? I get your rules. I get your government. But you know what? It needs to be my way. There was a way they responded. In fact, there was a time in which there was a group of very zealous Jewish men who decided, you know what? No, Rome. Your rules don't apply to me. And they rebelled against Roman rule in Jerusalem. Do you know what Rome did? Fine. Just send a couple thousand more men to Jerusalem and they literally crucified thousands of men, women, and children along the roads leading into and out of Jerusalem and then built a giant triumphal arc in the middle of the city to their victory. You want to rebel? You want to say no? You want to say it needs to be my way? 
fine. I'm just going to crush you. How, how does God respond to those who look at him and say, no. No. It's about me. It's about the way that I think it should be. Well, this same Paul would write a letter to another church in Philippi and he would say this. Speaking of Jesus, Paul said in Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Instead of crushing rebels like Rome does, Instead of crushing and destroying traitors, God sent his only son to be crushed in their place. That's why Paul, in reflecting upon this and thinking about this, would go on to write, therefore, because of this, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He created us to image him, to glorify him, and he's worthy of that glory as virtue of being our creator. But for you and I who have tasted of his mercy and his grace, he's worthy of our glory double over. He's worthy of that glory as our creator and he's worthy of that glory as our redeemer. The beauty of the gospel is that God takes that mirror that we've turned over and said it's all about me and he flips it back over so that we can see again his glory. We can see his beauty. We can see his greatness. He flips it back over that we can see it and then that through us as he's changing us and recreating us, that for which he created us for to image his glory can be seen throughout the earth. The beauty of the gospel is he takes what we've done to him and flips it back over for us. Some writers, and this helped me probably 15, 16 years ago, they talk about it being in a sense like a Copernican revolution of the soul. You know, the entire world thought the universe revolved around the earth. They looked out at the stars in the sky and they said, everything is revolving around the earth. Imagine how that shaped the way you grew up. If you thought that where you lived and where you were was the center of the known universe, everything revolved around the earth. And then Copernicus came along and said, that's not actually the case. It's not actually the case. We actually revolve around the sun. And a revolution took place when the world, when science, when people began to realize we're not the center of it all. And the beauty of the gospel is that God turns that mirror back over and you and I see that it's not actually about us. We're not actually at the center anymore. We weren't created by God for the sheer purpose of making much of ourselves. We were created by God to make much of him, to image him and to reflect him. That's the purpose for the life that he's actually given us. But here's the thing. The more I've talked about this with people, the more opportunities God has given me to have this kind of conversation if people, has been at, if people has, have asked this question over and over about purpose and, and why they're here, there's one response that has become consistent over the last five years. I've heard it from more and more people. Is it the, yes, I see it. Yes, I understand it. it. It makes sense. I see why that's the case. But here's the thing. I don't want to be used If God created me for his glory, that he could be glorified, I get it. But I don't want to be used. I want to be loved. That's the response I've heard over and over and over again as people listen to this. I I don't want to be used. I want to be loved. But but here's the thing. Let's go back to the Copernicus example for a second. Let's say the sun was a person and the earth was a person and the sun loved the person. 
The most loving thing the sun could ever do for the earth is to tell it that it had to orbit around the sun. The most loving thing the sun could ever do for the earth, if the earth really loved, the sun really loved the earth, the most loving thing it can do is say, you know what? I have to be the center of your orbit. Everything about you has to go around me. I have to be the center of everything for you because if I am no longer the center of your orbit, certain death awaits. The most loving thing God could ever do is to look at his creation and say, everything about your life has to center on me. Everything about your life has to be built around me. The most loving thing God could ever do for his creation is to say everything that you're looking for has to be found in me. That's why the greatest thing to understand about the purpose of life is to understand that God created you to reflect his glory, to image his glory, and that is the one thing that will bring you the greatest joy, the most happiness. That's why I said the Stoics, the Epicureans, all of those who have said the purpose of life is to seek the most happiness that you possibly can weren't wrong. They were right. Their answer was just incomplete. God created you hardwired to pursue that in this life that would bring you the most joy. And in his wisdom, in his wisdom, he determined that that which would bring you the most joy is finding your joy in him. The God who created you, who put you on this earth to reflect him says, here's what you need to do. You ready? Delight yourself in me. It's a command. Delight yourself in me. I mean, with ferocity, go after it. Delight yourself in me. You know why? Because I'm the one that the psalmist says shows you the paths of life. It's at my right hand is pleasure. Pleasure's forevermore. It's in my right hand. It's in me is fullness, not partiality, but fullness of joy. Delight yourself in me. Pursue the utmost happiness you can find in this life, knowing that the greatest happiness and the greatest joy you will ever find in this life that I hardwired you for is found in me. Oh, it's the beauty of the gospel. It's the Christian duty, Lewis said, that everyone be as happy as they can. And God insists that you build your life around him because he alone is the source of your greatest joy. And so he created you and he saved you and he's transforming you and he's preserving you all to the praise of his glory. And as you seek your delight in him and your joy in him and your happiness in him, he's glorified in you. The greatest part of the answer to the the question of does life actually have a purpose is that God doesn't make you choose between figuring out and pursuing that which makes you the most happy and glorifying him with your life. He doesn't make you choose. He's hardwired those two things together. He's determined that in him you find the most lasting, the most lasting joy and the most lasting pleasure. And then in finding in him the most lasting pleasure, he, he receives the most glory in you. No one's ever said it better in the history of Christian writing than Jonathan Edwards. And I know a lot of you aren't going to go grab Edwards' books. They're hard to read. They're hard to read for me to read. Yeah, I get it. I want you to listen to this. Edwards said, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. Do you hear that? God is glorified 
He created you to glorify him. He had created you to image and reflect him. And God is glorified not just by his glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. So when those who see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. God made the world that he might communicate and the creatures receive his glory and that it might be received by the mind and the heart. So listen to what he says. The person who only testifies his idea of God's glory. The person who just proclaims his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify so much as the one that testifies also to his delight in it, to his joy in it, to his satisfaction in it. God created you for his glory, that you would reflect, that you would display his glory. And he's most glorified in you. That, that glory is most reflected in you and through you when you're most delighted and satisfied in him. The church has been teaching this for centuries. The Westminster Confession, one of the greatest teaching tools the church has ever had, starts with this very question, what's the chief end of man? And they've understood it to be for centuries. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And one of my heroes changed my life by changing one of those words. And he said, the chief end of man is to glorify God by, by enjoying him forever. That's the purpose for which you were created. You were created to pursue your most lasting happiness and joy. You were created to pursue your joy in God. And God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in him. Even the Heidelberg Catechism, for those of you that may have grown up with that, another great teaching tool. It says the same thing because this is, this is the teaching of the Bible and understanding purpose. The Heidelberg Catechism starts off, what's my only comfort in life and death? What's my only comfort? What will keep me comfortable and happy in life and comfortable and happy in, in death? What do I need to know? And the second question that it actually asks is this, how many things are necessary for me to know to enjoy this comfort and live happily and die happily? And the entire catechism is built off that. What do you need to know to be happy? What do you need to know to be most happy in this life and in death? And the answers are all the same. That God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in him. So what's it mean for your life? What's it mean tomorrow? What's it mean for you later? It means that God created you for a purpose. He created you intentionally. He created you purposefully for a purpose. And if you're a follower of Christ, you can wake up tomorrow knowing that God created you with the knowledge that you have the privilege and the command of him to pursue tomorrow that which will bring you the most joy. You can wake up tomorrow knowing that God who created you has commanded you with all the energy in you and the ferocity of your heart to pursue that tomorrow which brings you the most joy and the most joy you could have in this life now and forevermore is found in him. So as you engage with him in his word tomorrow, you come to it knowing that your greatest delight and your greatest joy is found in him and you're pursuing that joy in him. When you're encouraging one another tomorrow and the next day and the day after that, you're encouraging people in who God is for them. Who he has been, who he is now, and who he continues to be for them. Because their greatest joy is found when they find that joy in him. 
It means when you wake up tomorrow and know that your purpose is to glorify him by finding your most satisfaction in him. It means you can go to your job, whether you're a banker or a doctor or a barista or a student or a homemaker, knowing that that job does not have to fulfill that purpose in your life. You no longer have to try to seek that job to get for you the purpose for which you exist because it can't do it. But you know the purpose for which you exist is to see your heart delighted with the most joy in God because in that delight, he's most glorified and you're free to go do whatever it is you're doing. You no longer have to seek out of people in your life that kind of joy and purpose because you know that that joy and that happiness is found in God and who he is for you. Listen, let me try to tie it all together. That the longing, the longing to be happy, it is a natural human experience. You were created for it. It's good. It's not sinful. And here's the thing that, that hit me 20 years ago, and it's still, I'm still wrestling with the implications of it even today in my life when I wake up every single day. It's simply this. God wants you to intensify this longing and to nourish it with whatever will provide the deepest and most enduring satisfaction. He created you to pursue it. He wants you to nourish it. He wants you to pursue it. He wants you to pursue it with whatever brings it the most intense delight and satisfaction. And he wants that because he knows the deepest and most enduring happiness you can find is found only in him. Not from him, but in him. You were created with a purpose. Your life has a fundamental purpose. And that purpose is to display the glory of God. To image and to reflect the glory of God. And God has hardwired creating you with that purpose, with this, that he's most glorified in you when you are most satisfied and delighted and happy in him. And the beauty of the whole thing is that he's made a way for everyone to be satisfied in him. The life, death, resurrection of his son, anyone who by faith, from the grace of God, through faith in Jesus, believes upon Jesus as their king and as their savior, God flips that mirror over. You're seeing his glory in the face of his son. He's saving you and he's redeeming you. And the purpose for which he created you, that in you and through you, he might be reflected, that he might be imaged, is being restored. We get to celebrate. We get to remember. We get to be encouraged again by this reality as those of us who are followers of Christ in just a minute will get a chance to receive communion. And so a moment, I'm, I'm going to pray. And then after that, you're going to have a, a chance to just reflect upon God's word. Just to reflect upon what he has said and how he's dealing with you and engaging with you. He has made a way for everyone to wake up knowing that he created them with a distinct purpose. A distinct purpose to glorify him in their life and the distinct purpose and privilege of pursuing their greatest joy. Pursuing your greatest joy joy, knowing that in him, in him alone, you live, you move, and you have your being. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to give you a chance to reflect, and we're going to respond together. Father, we thank you this morning that as often as we tend to believe that we're the only generation, and we're the only people that ask questions like this, Lord, your, your word, your word addresses the deepest questions and deepest longings of our heart. 
This morning, everyone came in here wanting so many different things and so many of us thinking that other things were, would bring us happiness and so many other things would, would bring us purpose. This morning, I need you to do the miracle that you can do by your Holy Spirit for each one of us in here and to help us see again your glory and the purpose for which you created us. God, we want to be delighted in you, not just in what you've done, but in you. Lord, make our hearts restless, restless like Augustine said, until they find their satisfaction and their space in you. God, we ask this morning that you would do that for your glory, for our joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.